Have you heard about the garlic diet? Yeah, the garlic diet. After every meal, you eat a bunch of garlic. And uh, you don't actually lose any weight, but from a distance, your friends all think you look thinner. This week's Parsha, Parsha's Baalei Sechel, we discuss the miraculous superfood, the mon, the bread from heaven that used to fall and nourish the Jewish people in the desert for 40 years. And it was a wonderful food, perfect nutrition, no waste, and could taste like anything you wanted, and yet they were complaining about it. What were they complaining about? So here's the thing. It could taste like anything you wanted, except with a few exclusions in the terms and conditions. This is what we read this week. The Jewish people are complaining, and they're recalling, they're remembering that back in Egypt, what did we used to eat? We used to eat the cucumber and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Why were they mentioning these foods? So Rashi comments and he says, Amar Rabbi Shimon, the Tana, Rabbi Shimon ben Yechai said, and this is Rashi quoting uh, Rabbi Shimon ben Yechai's opinion from the Sifri. Why did the mun taste like, or could taste like, all the flavors in the world with the exclusion of these few items? He says, They are harsh, they are difficult on nursing mothers. Like we say, We say to a woman, If she's nursing, we say, Don't eat onion or garlic because it's bad for the infant, for the nursing infant. And then, Rabbi Shimon ben Yechai says a mashal, he says, mashal lemelech v'chulu. This is a, uh, a parable, or it's described uh, by way of a parable of a king. What, what's the parable of the king? It says, he hired a tutor, a malamid, for his son. And before he gave the son over to the charge of the, of the, of the teacher, the king told, he gave the allergy list to the teacher. He told the teacher, don't feed my son this and this and this. It's not, it's not good for him. And then the son, this is all the mashal that Rabbi Shimon ben Yechai says in the Sifri, which, which, which Rashi quotes, explaining our verse. Um, that the son hears that the king gave his teacher a list of foods he's not allowed to eat, and the king hears, and the son hears this and says, Oh, my father, the king hates me. He wants to deprive me. That's why he told my teacher not to feed me this and this and this. And so, too, the Jewish people were complaining that, Oh, Hashem won't let these foods taste like this and this and this. He, he's being mean. He's trying to deprive us. Okay. So, a few questions here. A few questions. First question is, um, as we say in Jewish, Hakeh. Like, yeah, indeed. Why did everyone have to be deprived because certain flavors are not good for nursing mothers and their infants? I mean, it's a small, small, small segment of, of the population, and because of them, a concern for them, everybody has to miss out from, from these flavors. So that's the first question, question number one. Question number two. Why does Rashi mention that this explanation is from the Tana Rabbi Shimon ben Yechai? Rashi is always quoting Chazal, he's always quoting our sages, but he doesn't necessarily say the name of the specific sage that a, teacher, that a teaching comes from. And in this case he does, so what? It must be significant. And uh, question, that's the second question. Question number three. 
Um, the parable that Rabbi Shimon gives doesn't seem to exactly match up. Because in the parable, the king didn't want the son to eat certain foods because those foods were bad for the son. The son had a problem with those foods. In the actual case that the parable is supposedly describing, Hashem prevented the man from tasting like, the, like those foods, not because it would damage the Jewish people, but it would damage others, or it would damage a small minority segment within the people. So in, in the parable, it was protecting the person for his own good, not to eat food that would, would be damaging to him. But that doesn't explain the complaint that the Jews had, which was, why should we lose out? The food's not bad for us. It's not damaging us. It would damage, you know, nursing mothers and their children, but that, that, that's them, not us. And so how does the parable explain that? How does it give any more clarity? Um, to the contrary, it just magnifies the discrepancy between the, 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 the case that the, the metaphor is, which is, is describing, which makes sense. You don't let a person eat something that would damage him. And then the case that actually happened where people were being deprived of foods that wouldn't be damaging to them, it would be damaging to someone else. So, which is sort of like our first question, yeah, why? Why indeed did everyone miss out because of this small uh, segment of the population? Okay, and that's our third question. So, question number one, yeah, why did everyone have to miss out on those flavors because of, you know, nursing mothers and, and babies and, you know, who are really not a, uh, certainly not a, a significant number of people, okay, that's first of all. Second of all, um, why does Rashi mention specifically this is a teaching from Rabbi Shimon ben Yechai? And, and third of all, uh, what's the parable about? Because the parable seemingly doesn't explain the thing that we're confused about. Uh, the parable is about someone not eating things that would be bad for him, where the actual situation is people are not being allowed to eat foods that would be bad for someone else. Okay, fine, good. So I want to ask you a question. Have you ever heard the name Norman Borlaug? No, probably not. Um, you're not terribly ignorant, most people haven't heard of Norman Borlaug. Uh, he saved a billion people. Now you're thinking to yourself, hold on a second. First of all, how can one person save a billion people? That's crazy. Second of all, if he really saved a billion people, how come I never heard of him and uh, you're telling us that you don't think most people have heard of him? And I don't think most people have heard of him. So. <laughs> What's the story here? Who's Norman Borlaug? Well, I'll tell you, Norman Borlaug passed away a little over 10 years ago at the age of 95. He was a retired professor at Texas A&M University. And uh, he, was a, it was, he was a plant biologist from Texas. That's, that's who he was. And he saved a billion lives. How? Okay. So you need a little background. You have to know that in 1968, one of the best-selling books was called The Population Bomb. And this was based on all of the best science of that day, which said that we were about to face a crisis called The Population Bomb, where a billion people were going to die. There was no way around it. That's what was going to happen, because if population would continue to increase, people were going to starve to death. There was going to be a massive famine. Why? Because there's only a certain amount of arable land. That means land that actually produces uh, crops. And it's not enough nutrition. The math doesn't add up. You don't have enough land to produce enough produce that would provide enough nutrition for the amount of human beings to live that we're about to 
uh, to, for that number of, of, of a populace, the, the global population was about to, to be in the 1970s. So in 1968, it was predicted that in the 1970s, there's going to be the population bomb. And a billion people are going to starve to death and die. And according to everything they knew and everything they could have known, they were right. So how come there wasn't a population bomb? How come we don't hear about a billion people dying in, 19, in the 1970s? How come, in fact, since the 1970s, there's a few more billion people on the planet and, and everybody has food? And by the way, you should know that there is more than enough food to feed the, the planet today. And anytime there is starvation, unfortunately, it's not because of an inability to uh, produce the food. The, the Earth can't produce the food. It's because of human greed and corruption. We don't have a, a food shortage problem. We have a food distribution problem. There, it, it, there, there are countries that throw away more food than other countries eat. So we, the earth is producing plenty of food. But how come in 1968 all the scientists said that, that we were hitting a, a wall where it would be impossible? It would be impossible to, to, feed, the, to feed the world any longer. Because they didn't predict Norman Borlaug. Norman Borlaug came along and he developed a new strain of wheat kernel that was more resistant to pests and to disease. And it ended up yielding two or possibly three times as much as wheat kernels had, used, uh, had, had been accustomed to yielding. And he perfected that, that strain of wheat kernel. He, he sent it to India. He sent it to Pakistan. Then he did the same type of adaptation with, some, with, with, with rice, and he sent that rice to Asia, to China, and uh, world crisis averted. The famine that was supposed to take a billion lives ended up uh, never occurring, never taking place. And indeed, since that time, many more billions of human beings are alive today. All because of one guy, Norman Borlaug. But you see, here's what I want to talk about. For us Jews, the idea, the notion that one person could be responsible for a billion lives is not so far-fetched. We have this idea, we have this concept. In fact, the aforementioned Rabbi Shimon ben Yechai, the Tana, Rabbi Shimon ben Yechai that we mentioned earlier, he said something uh, similar about himself, Lahavdil. Rabbi Shimon, in uh, the Gemara and Sukkah, Daf Mem Hei Omen Beis, he says, He says, with my merits, I can protect the entire world from punishment. So, not just a billion people, but the entire world population. We have an idea, we have a concept in Judaism, that there's the power of an individual, and that individual can be equal to, the, to, the, to an entire world. And, and, when Rabbi Shimon ben Yechai said this, he wasn't bragging, he wasn't being conceited, God forbid to even, to even entertain such a notion, but, but, but let me explain. If you would ask Norman Borlaug, tell me the truth, don't lie, did you save a billion people? He would have to tell you, yeah, I saved a billion people. Rabbi Shimon ben Yechai was saying the same thing. It's a certain fact, that these are the zchusim, these are the merits that I have, and it's, it's sufficient to exempt the entire world from, from judgment. That's just, just a fact. No arrogance whatsoever. And, and, and this is an important concept. This is an important idea. That there is such an idea of an individual who can have global impact. An individual who can save an entire world. 
So with that in mind, I want to tell you a story. I just want to tell you one story. And it's a story about a failed lecture. What is the failed lecture? The Rebbe Shliach in Melbourne, Australia, Rabbi Chaim Gutnik, Shalom. He used to come once a year to the Rebbe in Yechidus, in private audience, and discuss what was going on in Australia, discuss his work as a Shliach. And one year he came, and the Rebbe told him that it would be a good thing to have classes in Taras HaMishpacha, family purity, mikveh, the laws of, of, of mikveh. And uh, Rabbi, Rabbi Gutnik was, was nervous about it because he, he felt that it was a hard sell for the community at that time. But the Rebbe told him that he should do it, so therefore he knew that, that he should do it. And uh, when he got back to Melbourne, he spoke with his wife and he said, we're going to have to make some classes on, on mikveh because the Rebbe has specifically uh, encouraged us to do so. So they went and they planned the whole course, a, a series of, of classes, and they advertised, they did a whole advertising campaign, and they rented a hall, they had a big space, because they advertised, you know, they're going to have a big turnout. And th that fateful night came for the lecture in Taharas Mishpacha and Mikveh for all the women of Melbourne. And they waited and waited, and waited, and one woman showed up. One woman showed up. You know, I want to tell you something. Anyone who's ever run an event knows that having one person show up is worse than no people showing up. Because if no people show up, what do you do? <laughs> you go home, and if anyone asks, hopefully no one asks, but if anyone asks, you say, oh, it was very nice, it was a nice event. Well, how many people were there? I don't, I don't count. Who counts? <laughs> right? But if one person shows up, now you're stuck. Now you have a witness. Now they see. They're the only person who showed up. So he was really, really embarrassed. And he apologized to her. And he says, I'm sorry. I'm going to cancel. She said, no, no. I want to hear. Teach me. So he says, okay, fine. I'll teach you. So he taught her. After that, they said, okay. Now we have, they said it was a series of classes. So, okay, we have another week to really promote it, Let, let's, let's try to get more people. And they did everything they could to promote it, to advertise. Came the next week, and the one woman showed up. Same woman. Same woman. Rabbi Gutnik apologized profusely. I'm sorry, I don't know why. <laughs> she says, it's okay, I want to learn. So he taught her. He taught her just one woman. Anyways, the next year, Rabbi Gutnik was again in New York, and he went to Yechidus with the Rebbe. And uh, the Rebbe specifically asked him about how were the classes for the women in Melbourne on Tadus HaMishpacha and, and the laws of mikveh. Now, uh, it wasn't something that Rabbi Gutnik was very eager to report on, okay, because it was a failed lecture. So Rabbi Gutnik apologized and he said, you know, we, we promoted it, we advertised it, I don't know what happened, but it was a failure. The Rebbe says, what, what was the failure? Well, we had a very low turnout. <laughs> what was a low turnout? Only one woman came. It was just one woman came. It was a failure. And the Rebbe got very, very serious. And the Rebbe said to Rabbi Gutnik, Zogmir, Vifel mamis hot mesher rabbeinu gehat? Mer Tell me, how many mothers did Moses have? More than one? Or just one? One mother. One Jewish mother who gave birth to one little Jewish child changed the entire world as we know it. 
So tell me, you call that a failure? That's not only not a failure, that's a success of global proportions. Teaching one mother who's going to give birth to one child is not just a child, it's a world. It's a world. Because one person can affect an entire world. That's the power of the individual. That's the power of one. Now, I want to make something very clear here. When I say this is the power of the individual, this is the power of one, I don't only mean a Rabbi Shem ben Yechai or a Meishe Rabbeinu. I mean each one of us. Yes, there are those who historically, everyone knows their name and everyone knows their contribution and how they saved the world and they affected the entire world. And even millennia later, people still are living with their influence. Yes, that's true. There are people like that. But every soul, every one of us came to the world for some unique contribution. It is axiomatic that there are no redundant souls. No two of us came to the world for the same mission. If you came to this world, you came here to do something for the, for the world that, that, that no one else can do. And therefore, in that way, in that way, you have a contribution to make that is global. And that the whole world is waiting for. So each one of us affects an entire world. And that's the answer to all of our questions now. Now we can answer all of our questions. First question. Why did everybody have to miss out and not have the garlic and the onion? Why? Because it's just going to affect a few nursing mothers and their babies? <laughs> what are you talking about? A nursing mother and her baby is a world. That's not an individual. That's a world because every individual has a gift to give to the entire world. That's the answer to question number one. Question number two, why does Rashi say that it's Shimon ben Yechai specifically who provided this teaching? Well, because Shimon ben Yechai is a prime example of someone who had a global impact. Yocholani lifters kola ilum kulei minadin, like the Gemara says. Maybe Shimon was somebody who had that global influence where we see, we see the global influence that the individual can have. That's question two. And question three, the parable seemingly doesn't fit because in the parable, the father told the teacher, don't feed my son anything that would damage him. But in the situation with the man, it was a little bit different, where the Jewish people were being deprived of food. that wouldn't damage them, it would damage somebody else, the nursing mothers and the infants. Ah, but that's not exactly so, is it? Because if a child is a world and has a gift for the entire world and can affect the entire world, so then something that damages that child damages the entire world, because then the entire world would be bereft, would miss out, would be lacking that gift that that child has to, to, to give to the world. That answers our third question, so now we've answered all of our questions. And the lesson is very simple, and the lesson is very clear. Each one of us, each one of us is a world. Each one of us has a gift, has a mission that's unique. And the world is waiting for each one of us to reveal what that gift is.